Welcome to the Renovate Podcast. My name is Robert Newberry, and I'm on staff with Renovate, a ministry in Fort Worth, Texas for young adults. We are going through a series called To Wander and Return, a study in the Minor Prophets. And this week, Ben is speaking on Zephaniah. Enjoy. Amen. Praise God. How are you guys tonight? Good. I love that you're here. Uh, I am excited. We are going to be in Zephaniah, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. I know you guys are like, man, can't wait to hear another sermon on Zephaniah. It's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, For those of you guys who are uh, guests or haven't been around that long, we are going through, we're kind of doing two series at once. We're kind of alternating between the series where we're going through the minor prophets, which are these uh, 12 prophet books at the very end of the Old Testament. And so we've just been going through them systematically, uh, a book a night. Uh, And then we also will kind of switch over every once in a while on a Wednesday and trick you guys. And we'll just talk about the gospel and and the gospel implications. Uh, So tonight, obviously, minor prophet. The ever popular Zephaniah. Um, Zephaniah, uh, as I was studying this this week, you know, oftentimes uh, you'll get kind of a, a visual or an illustration of kind of a theme in the book. And usually it's something that connects spiritually to me um, as, you know, a, a picture that I kind of have that's kind of a thread that runs through books. And just the way my mind works, uh, it kind of helps me understand the book a little bit more, or understand kind of a theme of the book. With this one, the way my mind works, uh, I, this is, go with me here, this is weird, uh, but I kept thinking Coca-Cola. And let me explain why. Uh, and you just... I recognize that's weird and kind of almost shallow in some ways, but go with me here for a second. So in uh, 1985, in April of 1985, actually, I'm a nerd, so I know this, Coca-Cola rolled out New Coke, right? They rolled out this whole new product called New Coke. And it was, if anybody's like a marketing major or anything in here, uh, you learned uh, that that was one of the biggest marketing debacles ever. Uh, Here is Coca-Cola, this giant of the soda industry. And they were like, hey, man, let's take our, you know, our kind of golden calf here. Let's take our big money-making thing and let's change it. Let's put some spins on it. Let's create new Coke. Let's change the flavor, change the taste. So they rolled out new Coke. And it was insane the amount of backlash they got. I mean, just people were furious and throwing rocks and babies at the building. And it was this awful, awful thing and writing letters. And that was before email probably. And so it was like carrier pigeons and all kinds of stuff. They were just furious. How dare you mess with Coke? It lasted for 79 days before then they reintroduced Coca-Cola Classic. And so if you've ever heard Coca-Cola Classic, you, it's called Coca-Cola Classic because they totally blew it in 1985 in the release of New Coke. And so it's like, hey, I promise we're back. This is the classic one. This is what we've, we've returned back to our roots. And Zephaniah, so this, this illustration, I just kept thinking of in my head as I was studying this. Zephaniah is, is absolutely, as shallow as it is, a call back to something. Uh, What happens in Zephaniah and what the prophet of Zephaniah for three chapters is doing is he is calling people back because it is a total disaster what they've introduced. They were going along great and fine and everything was great and then they wandered away from what was good. And Zephaniah is a call back to say, let us go back to the original. Let us go back to what started this. Let us go back to our God, ultimately. And so that is uh, really the, the kind of theme of Zephaniah. Uh, this whole series we've been talking about is this idea of prophet after prophet after prophet uh, is calling people who wander to return. 
Uh, and that is, so, that is so important for me to hear as a man who so quickly finds my soul and my heart wander from God, needing to be continually reminded to be called back to a God who's better. And so um, that is the major theme, certainly, of this book. So I want to set it up this way. Uh, I want to give you some context of what's happening just to lead up to this point in history when this book was written. And then I'm going to unpack. Here's the book. It's three chapters. It won't take that long to unpack it. And then we're going to say, Lord, what do you have for us? What does that mean for us? So that's kind of the, the framework of, of uh, tonight. <clears throat> King David. Most of us know King David, heard of King David. He was a stud in Israel. He was technically the second king. It was Saul, and then it was King David, and he was the, he was the pinnacle of king. I mean, he was a godly man. Scripture says King David was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. He made a ton of mistakes. He made some really, really big mistakes, but King David was a man after God's own heart. And then King David has a son who's the next king, Solomon. And Solomon starts out good, and he's a king of Israel, and he starts out good, but by the end of his life, and around the time he's even writing the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, uh, you see Solomon really admit to how far he's wandered. Uh, Solomon had like hundreds of wives and hundreds of just friends with benefits and infinite wealth and infinite, whatever he wanted was at his fingertips. And, and because of that, he wandered into all kinds of sin. He allowed there to be false gods in the kingdom and he allowed there to be the worship of other gods in uh, the kingdom of Israel. And so Solomon is this king that things start to really pivot for and things really start to go south with his family. And after that, Solomon has kids. There's all kinds of warring and battling. Um, you have a line of king after king after king after king who are wicked, who wander from God, who David, who was a man after God's own heart, who was close to God, who wanted to obey God's laws, who fought to do that um, even in the midst of his mistakes, then would quickly repent of those mistakes. You had king after king after king who led God's people into uh, disobedience. Uh, you had Jeroboam the first, and then Nadab, and then Basha, and all of these kings chronologically got further and further and further away from worshiping the one true God. They would introduce idolatry and, and worship of other false gods. Uh, it became this wicked thing. There was a division in the kingdom of Israel, and you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and then in the southern kingdom, you had Rehoboam, who was this king who was awful and, and did not uh, love the things of the Lord. And so you just had bad news, and Israel wandered. They wandered, they wandered, and wandered, and then comes this King Josiah. And right around the King Josiah shows up, Israel is still so far gone. And Josiah is this young kid who gets appointed king, and he doesn't really have any, uh, any inclination to change things either. Uh, he's not set at the beginning of his reign to worship the one true God. He's just doing the king thing, enjoying what he can, uh, knowing that their, their kingdom might even come out under attack uh, soon. But he's just kind of going through the motions. And it's in that time period that Zephaniah shows up. Zephaniah was a prophet in that southern part of, uh, of the kingdom of Israel, in Judah is what it was called. And basically Zephaniah shows up. And in these three chapters, this is his prophecy to God's people. It's his calling out of God's people. You have wandered and the day of the Lord is upon you. And the day of the Lord and God's wrath and the judgment of the Lord is upon you you have wandered and God is going to come and pay for your wandering. So let's jump into this text. Uh, I'm going to kind of segment it. Chapters really one and two are very similar, uh, but there's a little few nuances and then I really want to 
park us at the end of chapter 3 to really see what we do with this. So if you look in Zephaniah 1, and I'll throw the verses up on the screen if that's easier for you guys, or uh, if you've got iPhone Bibles, or there's a Bible under your seat if you need one. Um, <clears throat> Zephaniah chapter 1, 2, and 3, look at, look at how he comes out honestly swinging. <clears throat> this is what he says. This is God's word through the prophet Zephaniah. Verses 2 and 3, he says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. And the idols that cause the wicked to stumble when I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. He is not messing around here. God sees the wrath of his people who he adopted, who he saved, who he brought from Egypt, who he delivered who he has loved and provided for, and he sees his kids run, run and rebel and hate the things of God. Then we see in chapter two, and so it kind of goes out where Zephaniah says the wrath of God is coming. God's word is saying he is coming. He is coming. Prepare yourself. At the beginning of chapter two, we see it again. Uh, The beginning of chapter two, he says, Uh, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Um, Welcome to Renovate, man. We're going to preach on God's wrath. Uh, (laughs) I I honestly, if I can just um, give a quick little aside, I, I don't think, I think at times, and maybe I'm just speaking from my own experience, so maybe this doesn't apply to you. Maybe it's just a pastor thing. Uh, I think there's times where, man, we've got to see the whole counsel of God. We've got to see God's word in its entirety. And I think there's times when we read about God's wrath and we read about God's anger towards sin. And I think there's something about me, and maybe it's our generation, that says, man, I would much rather skip those sections. Right? We can't really skip those if we're preaching the minor prophets. But I don't think we are comfortable looking at the full picture of who God is and seeing God's wrath. And throughout the prophets, we've seen that. And so I I want us to look at it and I want us to not avoid it. And I want us to say, man, what kind of God is this that we worship? And we sing about how much he loves us and all those things. So how do we justify his wrath um, with also this God who is slow to anger and compassionate and those kind of things? And so uh, we can't be afraid to read the Bible. We can't be afraid to be afraid to read all of the Bible um, or preach all of the Bible. And so look at what God continues to do in this chapter. I'm going to give you the bullets. He calls out his wrath on the Philistines and in chapter 2, and he says, the Philistines, you will be wiped out. Then he goes after Moab and Ammon, these, these other nations that worship all of these false gods. The one true God watches his creation worship dirt instead of worshiping himself, worshiping golden statues or stone statues instead of worshiping the creator of stone and the creator of gold. Then he goes after Assyria. Then he goes after Jerusalem at the end of chapter two. And then look at Zephaniah chapter three, verse eight. There's kind of a pivot here. Um, The whole wrath of God is building and building and building for two and a half chapters. Verse eight starts with, therefore, therefore, wait For me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Our God takes sin so seriously. 
He takes sin so seriously. He hates it. He desires to destroy it, desires to wipe it out. Two and a half chapters, the God of the universe over his beloved people and to the nations around him says, there is wrath coming because of your crazy, crazy disobedience. And then look what happens in the next couple verses, picking up in verse nine. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Right at the peak of his wrath coming, his burning anger towards God's people. Then in the very next verse, he says, and in that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Verse 11, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Look look at what happens here. So two and a half chapters of Zephaniah are God's wrath is coming for disobedience. And then in verse 9 through 11, something really, really important happens. We see that the anger and wrath and fire of God is not just to wipe people out mercilessly. The anger and the wrath and the fire of God seems to be more about the purification of God's people. He will change the speech of the people to pure speech. Verse 11, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you rebelled against me. Um, We will serve him with one accord. We will be worshipers. We shall bring our offerings. All of a sudden, in the midst of God's anger and this prophecy of God's anger, we see restoration and we see hope. And we see a God whose wrath that's being poured out against sin is not just crushing ants who have disobeyed him. It's a wrath that is wiping out sin so that his people might be purified. So that all of a sudden our speech may be pure. And the deeds which we rebelled against won't put us to shame. And the enemy will be wiped out amongst us. Uh, I love that. It is a destruction of the enemy. It is purification. It's a purification process that God brings at his judgment because, yes, he cares about our holiness and whether we reflect him and whether we function in the way that we were designed to, which the purpose of our design is to bring about glory to our God, not ourselves, but to our God. And when we're not functioning in that way, we bring about this dysfunction to the world around us and to our own lives. And this God sees that brokenness. And his wrath sets bones, maybe in painful ways, but sets things right again to where they should be because he is jealous for his glory in a way that only our God deserves to be jealous for his own glory. Josiah, the king, who all of this, while this is happening, uh, Josiah, this young king, he, I, I'm going to paraphrase uh, 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, but functionally, here's what happened. Uh, he, he's going through the temple, and there's all these false gods, and there's other people who've kind of discovered, well, wait a second, there are these scrolls that we've kind of found in a back broom closet somewhere uh, behind you know, this idol to this false god and behind this table that we sacrificed to this false god. And we found these like old scrolls and we unrolled them and wow, we found the commands of God. We found what our forefathers had. We found what was good originally and where our people were. We found what David was initially building the kingdom that God had put David in charge of, which was about God's glory. And this 
how to, how to reflect and obey God. We found his law, Josiah. And Josiah takes it and he reads it and he's like, what? We're supposed, this is what our life should look like? This is how we should live? I thought we were living this way. This is how my father taught me and my grandfather taught me. This is how we've always run our kingdom. But wait a second. Our forefathers said we have to this and this and this. And this is what God saved us from, this stuff over here. And this is what he called us to. And we haven't been doing it. And so Josiah, he has this huge revival in, in his kingdom of Judah. And he starts flipping over false gods and removing things that aren't glorifying to God and say, man, we got to start being obedient to the way God designed us to function. We've got to start worshiping correctly. We've got to stop substituting what God intended for us for some cheap substitute. In chapter 23 of 2 Kings, it says this, verse 24 in chapter 23, uh, moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers, and the household gods, and the idols, and all the abominations that, we, that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that the priest had found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Um, <clears throat> Josiah sees it. He sees it and he repents. He, he realizes the way that they were living, the gods they were worshiping were false gods. He realizes that he was trading God for a cheap substitute. That the kingdom, that his people were trading God's way for a cheap substitute and they were paying a penalty uh, for it. Um, that's repentance, right? That's this idea of repentance, this idea of turning towards God and turning away from the things that aren't of God. That's what that looks like. That's what Josiah did in the history of Israel. Um, that is what Zephaniah calls Israel to do in that same season. And then look at what happens when that takes place. The last uh, maybe six verses of the book of Zephaniah. There's three things that I want to point out that, uh, that should happen uh, that I think are really applicable to us here in these verses. Verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> Chapter 3, it says this. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemy, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. God tells his people, flee. He warns them. His judgment is coming. His purification fire is coming. Repent, repent, turn, throw away the false gods. Quit substituting the worship for the one true God, for the worship of all these fake things that don't produce life, only chasing death. And he does that. And then look at the response of what happens. Look at the response that should happen for us if we are repentant, if we turn, if we stop wandering and come back to God. He says, sing aloud, rejoice, exult. He has taken away judgment. And so one of the big takeaways for me, um, there's about three things here that I want us to hold on to. Um, but, but the first one is that we are to rejoice from this new place. 
We're to rejoice from a new family that we've been adopted into. And so if there is repentance in our life, and if tonight, at the end of the night, there becomes repentance, and if the Holy Spirit convicts you, and we'll talk about what, what that looks like and how to in just a second, but if that happens, then one of the products of that should be worship and rejoicing from a new place. Um, we are broken and we are made new. We are broken and we are made new. Uh, my parents, um, they work, they've spent a big chunk of their life, like 20 years, the last 20 years of their life, working with orphans, in Russia, an orphan ministry. And one of the things that they see so often is uh, these, these kids who are taken from really um, awful, um, awful situations and adopted into families that really, really love them uh, and really, really give them a new family and a new life. And they're taken from this really broken place and they're given this new place. And, and although there are all kinds of struggles of remembering who they are, uh, there is a rejoicing that naturally is going to happen when something is taken from a desolate place and brought into a new place. There should be a response of rejoice in our life as we repent um, because of this, next, of this next point, which is uh, verses 16 and 17. Look at what he says. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will, who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's our God. A God who takes broken people, who repent and restores them to where we can rejoice, but we can rejoice from a place of confidence. Confidence. We no longer have to fear. If, we've, if we are now walking with the Lord, if we've walked away from that, if we've wandered and returned, then we no longer have to fear. We get to rejoice, but also we get to rejoice because of a confidence that we now have. No longer fear. No longer fear. Let not your hands grow weak. And then look what happens. Our God sings over us. The God who, the first two and a half chapters, his anger was being poured out. This is a God who then over his repentant people, those who Broken and humbled, walk back to the God that they left. He sings over them. That's the picture of our awesome heavenly God who demands all glory, singing over them, exalting over them, quieting us by his love. We find confidence in God's pleasure. Um, man, I am, I am convinced. I am convinced that if I knew and really believed and really knew and understood how much God really loved me, I'm convinced I don't really understand that. I, I know it, right? I talk about it. Uh, it's something that I kind of mentally hang on to. I have a God because of Christ and Christ's grace in my life who loves me despite, oh my gosh, a lot of sin. Like despite my own sin and, and wandering and idiotness and all of the things that has been in my flesh, I have a God who still loves me. And I know that and I kind of understand that, but I am convinced if I understood the depths at which the God of the universe really loved me, my mountains would move. If you really, really knew and believed how much God really loves you, not a superficial, shallow the semantics of, yeah, Jesus loves me. But if I really understood that, if you really understood the depths, found confidence in God's pleasure and knew that a God was singing over me and my 
wandering heart singing over me, man, it would change everything. My sons, I love, I got two boys, Charlie and Miles, little, little guys, I love them. They do not know how much I love them, right? They don't. I tell them all the time. I try to show them. I will spend the rest of my life showing them how much I love them, but they don't understand how much I love them, right? Charlie at five and a half, he is so performance driven already to the point where if he makes a mistake, if he does something wrong, if I have to discipline in some reason, I mean, everything crumbles around him. But they don't know how much I love them and what I would do for them. We have a God who gave his only begotten son for us. Would we find confidence? As we repent, would we find confidence in God's presence? Would we really be able to walk in that kind of freedom? And then this last, uh, this last thing I want us to hold on to uh, before I kind of tease out how do we identify this stuff is these last few verses. <clears throat> Starts in 18. I will gather, this is what God says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. And the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Man, if we are really walking in repentance, I hope you hear that there should be rejoicing. doesn't mean we should always be happy, but there should be some level of spiritual rejoicing if we're walking in repentance to a God who is then exalting over us. We should find confidence in this love of God's. And then finally, we should walk in that restoration. We are restored. He restores those who are broken. He restores those who wander back to him. We sang at the beginning of this very, the beginning of this service, we, we sat in our seats, stood in our spots, and we sang, in your presence I have been restored. Do I believe that? For those who are in Christ in this room, who put their faith in Christ, do you believe that in his presence, are we singing songs or do we believe in your presence, I have been restored? And that means the depth of all of your sin, all of your sin over the course of your life, all of that shame and all of that guilt, and over the course of your life and over the course of the last three days and over the course, man, it's been restored. I, that brokenness has been restored. Do I get to walk in that confidence? Are we? walking in that confidence. And that's what Zephaniah lets us see this picture of through God's people who wander and he says, come back and I will restore you to us sitting in a room on a random Wednesday night who have wandered. He says, come back. He says, come back and he will restore. He will give us reason to rejoice. He will give us confidence in his love. So um, how do we do this, right? How do we, uh, how do we get there, right? I love that, that you know, Zephaniah kind of shows you this picture of, wow, look at, the, look at the fruit of repentance. But how do we get there? How do we identify that? What do we do to get to that step? Um, real practically, I, I had some things that I felt like the Lord really laid on my heart um, of what kind of that repentance might be in your life. And here's the thing. There's some people in this room that that question's easy. The question of, okay, what do I need to repent of? For some people in this room is really easy because the Holy Spirit was at work when you walked in here and loved you enough to say, hey, 
I love you, son. I love you, daughter. This is what I have for you. I want you to walk away from this. You are substituting me for a counterfeit, and it is not bringing life. Come back to me. And so I know there are people in here who the Holy Spirit's already at work on, and they're like, great. The person I worry about, and sadly, I'm usually in this camp too, is I hear a sermon, I'm like, man, it's great for somebody who's like, you know, really gone. You know, it's a good sermon for them. But this isn't, you know, I nod my head. It's like, yeah, man, this would be really encouraging. And I, I can't apply it to my own life. I don't have the depth to be able to say, man, Lord, what are those areas in my life? Show me, reveal those things that all of us would see, Lord, where are areas, where are, where are we substituting God for a counterfeit? Um, a, cu- a couple of things um, that we've got to identify. We have to identify. That's how we get to repentance. We have to understand when Josiah when he found the law, he goes into the temple, he goes into these places and just starts flipping tables. Let's figure out where all this disobedience is and let's flip it over and let's rip down these statues and let's rip up these altars to false gods. We've got to investigate and do business in our heart and our souls of where are our false gods? Where are the places that we're worshiping that is not the one true God? Uh, we cannot worship the one true God and disobey him at the same time. It doesn't work. We can't worship truly in the presence of God in our life. And I don't mean like sing songs. I mean like being living worshipers, living, living worshipers for God, living a life that glorifies him and obedience to him. We can't do that and then simultaneously also be living in disobedience. Those things aren't, they're mutually exclusive in so many ways. And by the grace of God, his salvation still covers that gap between those two things. But on an ongoing basis, there has to be repentance. We have to be able to identify those things. And if we think we can, if you think, you know what, I can love Jesus and love, love the Lord, and, and I can, I can, my relationship with God is unaffected by these unrepentant areas of sin. These areas of sin, I don't really need to deal with them. That's not that big of a deal. I can still, my relationship with the Lord is just fine. If, we have, if you've created that pathway to be able to coexist with both of those things, trying to serve two masters in your life, I love you. You have created a false God. The God that you feel like is very comfortable with you walking in unrepentant sin ongoingly. I love you enough to tell you that God that you have invited in is a, is a watered down version of our holy God. He wants more of you. He wants all of you. He doesn't want all of you before he saves you. He saves broken people while we were still sinners. This is not about salvation. This is about how we grow and be sanctified to look more and more like him. Thank God he doesn't wait for us to get cleaned up before he saves us. He meets us in the mess and in the total disobedience and saves us. But how we grow, I can't worship God truly and also live a life disobedient to him. So a few quick thoughts, and then I'll pray, and then we will continue to worship. But they are, one, uh, check your work. Uh, Check your your work, your life, uh, what, what you're spending your work on. Is your work um, and ask the Lord, Lord, is my work or even my pursuit of work become an idol? Has it become a false God? Am I substituting what work is supposed to be, which is your design, this glorifying thing to you, this thing that you say is good, this thing that, that you can bring glory from and how I work and how I function in my job and in my career and in my pursuits and in my studies and all of those things, is it glorifying to you or am I working to glorify myself? And search the Lord on that. Say, Lord, would you identify? Is this an area I need to wander back from? Man, relationships are such, such a good one. And by good one, I mean crappy one. 
man, I, um, <clears throat> relationships become so idolatrous so quickly. I dated this girl uh, when I was 21. Uh, she was 19. Really started out as this really godly relationship. Um, cared, uh, cared about her a ton. Um, and it really was this very godly relationship and was really pursuing her with uh, the intentions of, man, I really want to pursue this girl towards marriage and I want to be this picture of Christ to her and I want to be this, um, this encouragement in her spiritual walk and I want, us to, I want us to do it right. I want us to do this relationship the way God designed. And, um, and I, in my immaturity, and I can't even excuse my immaturity, in my false worship, um, after maybe six months, really pivoted that relationship into a really toxic relationship. Um, like we still emotionally got along really well and all of those things, um, but I introduced a lot of disobedience into our relationship and really struggled with a lot of sexual sin in that relationship. Um, and sex is good and sex is designed by God. And I'm convinced, just like people don't like to preach about the wrath of God, Christians don't talk about sex enough. It's awesome, and it is God's design, and it is rad. And I got two kids, so I've done it at least twice, and it's amazing. <laughs> uh, sex is this awesome, incredible thing that God designed. And he designed it in this way to bring him glory and to bring about connection to two people who have submitted their lives in a covenant under him. And so he's got this incredible design for it. And as a man who has struggled with the same things biologically outside of the covenant of marriage and then also enjoyed them inside the covenant of marriage, of a, of a, of a marriage that is submitted to Jesus, they are two totally drastic things. One of them is a total counterfeit to God's design. And the other one is this life-producing, awesome gift and blessing in a marriage. And yet I, as a young man, chased after this counterfeit thing because I wanted what I wanted. And I, didn't, I wanted to roll up God's scroll of how I'm supposed to do relationships in a way submitted. I wanted to hide him in a broom closet somewhere. And I wanted to do things the way I wanted to do it. And it became this really toxic thing for me, guys. And there was some real brokenness and some real brokenness in that relationship. And by the grace of God, uh, there was some accountability that came into my life and there was some repentance that had to happen, stubbornly being dragged by the Holy Spirit in, in a phase of my life to repent and ended up seeking some incredible reconciliation. And I'm now married to that woman and I love her and it's an incredible thing to see God's restoration in that. And I don't say that as license to anyone to be like, oh, well, Ben and Danielle, man, their relationship had a lot of sin in it, so we're good too. I don't want that as a pastor to tell that story and the enemy use it as license. Um, I want to tell that story, though, and I want to be vulnerable, man. I made a ton of mistakes in leading my sweet wife before she was my wife. And, man, I knew I wanted to marry her like week two, man. I, I knew I wanted to marry her before I asked her out and I was hiding outside her bushes, stalking her for months. It was before Facebook, so I just had to, like, creep on her. Um, I knew I wanted to marry her, so it didn't have to do with, like, well, I know I'm going to. I mean, I gave myself so many excuses. Um, but, man, I just, I wanted to be my own God. I wanted to do things the way I wanted to do them in my timing with gratifying my flesh and say, Lord, I don't want to do it in your timing. And so for me, that was a, became a really toxic thing and planted seeds that were really dangerous and hurtful that we reaped the fruit of that uh, in our relationship. Uh, and yet God, yes, restored that. Praise God for that. Um, relationships are that way, man. Even, even not being in a relationship is that way. 
man, I know so many people who I love so much, and I hate, I hate this for them. Because relationship is a good thing, but the singleness becomes this, it becomes this place that you can become really vulnerable to say, man, I need a relationship. That's going to be my God. As a single person, then to look at other relationships or hear some pastor get up there and talk about his marriage and his cute kids and all that stuff and be like, man, what the heck? I want that. And all of a sudden, the, the allure of a relationship becomes our worship and our pursuit of, if I could only get that, their relationships are incredible and they're powerful and that's why they're so great and beautiful and blah, 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 blah. But because of that, there's such an area for us to ask the Holy Spirit, whether you're in a relationship or you're single, to say, Lord, is this submitted to you? Do I want to do it your way or am I going to choose a counterfeit way to do it? And knowing that the God that we're repenting towards restores and gives confidence and sings over his people who repent. This is not about sexual sin either. Man, I don't want you to hear that. It is about a position of my heart, a position of your heart in a relationship. What are you worshiping? All that other stuff is just symptoms of a place that, man, I'm worshiping myself and what I want. Okay, last couple. Uh, Check your heart. Identify comfort. Look at the margin in your life. Maybe that's an area the Holy Spirit's convicting you on. Maybe this is a place you need to wander back. Look at the margin in your life and say, how do I fill the margins of my life? Is it just for self-glorification? Is it just binge-watching TV? Is it, just, is it just for myself? How do I fill the margins of my life? Has that become an area of idolatry for you? Your own comfort, your own satisfaction. Um, maybe, maybe check your heart. Maybe you're angry at God. God can handle your anger, but at some point, you're going to be able to have to say, Lord, maybe, maybe you're angry at him because of unmet, circum- unmet expectations or because of pain or because of suffering in your life. And you have to get to a place to say, okay, is this an area I need to repent from? Is this an area I need to wander back to a God and reposition? Why am I angry at him? What was I entitled to that I don't think I'm getting? Submitting myself to the Lord. All of those things, man, I just, I say as a brother in your life uh, to encourage you, man, check those areas. Check every corner of your heart. Josiah, I want you to leave with that picture of him just getting it and saying, I want to obey. Let's go through the kingdom and flip over every table and every temple and figure out where it is that we're disobeying. Would we chase after repentance like that so that we might experience the restoration of God in our life? Let me pray over you. Father, would you please do this work in us? Uh, Would you please um, show us those areas of our life? God, we love your word. We love Zephaniah and what you show us there. We see your wrath as this purifying thing, a wrath that wipes out sin, that wipes out the enemy within us, the enemy around us. Lord, would we submit to you? But you've got to do that work, Lord. So would you be gracious and show us those areas that we wander? Uh, Some of us are quick to be able to see those and others, God, you... uh, Would you give us eyes to see them more and more? And then, Lord, would we repent? And in our repentance, would it not be turning from one behavior to another behavior, but would our repentance be turning from worshiping ourselves and other things to worshiping Jesus? Would our repentance not be about behavior modification, but would our repentance be about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have already done the work? You've already accomplished holiness for us, 
And our role now is to submit to Christ with our life. To go before you and submit to Christ Jesus, Lord. And then we get your righteousness upon us. And so, Lord, would you do that work, Father? Uh, And would our repentance, God, be staring at a God who sent his son to die and rose again so that we might have life? Holy Spirit, do this work. Please, for your glory, in the name of Jesus, amen. It's our hope that you would see the truth that we all have places in our lives where we have wandered off, where we have strayed from what is right. So rather than continuing on in those ways because we're embarrassed or shamed, may we humbly recognize our need for Jesus and return to him. It is not about how far we have gone or what we have done, but instead, it's about what Jesus did. So wherever you are, whether it is in the bottom of a valley or you feel like things are going pretty well, ask the Lord to show you where you have wandered off. And then, in a humble spirit, submit to Him as the Lord over your life because He died to bring you back to Him and return to what He has called you to. If you need help figuring out what that looks like or just want someone to talk to, reach out to us at renovateftw.org or on social media at renovateftw, and we would love to talk to you. But that's all from us this week. We hope to see you again soon.